This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I think we've got another great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking to two guests about the epic battle to restore the Everglades. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. There are many stakeholders vying for control of the Everglades. There are developers who want to build houses on it. There are agricultural concerns that want to continue to grow sugar and other crops. There are politicians who want to protect the drinking water for Floridians. But at the center of all the controversy is the wildlife of the Everglades. Their fate is hanging in the balance. To address some of these concerns, I'd like to now introduce Keeley Weicker, the Director of Engagement and Outreach at the Everglades Foundation, headquartered in Palmetto Bay, Florida. Keeley is here to talk to us today about the great work the Foundation is doing to ensure protection and restoration of the Everglades. Keeley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. So could you tell our listening audience just a little bit about yourself and what you do for the Everglades Foundation? Sure. So I am the Director of Engagement Outreach at the Everglades Foundation. I've been with them for about five and a half years. And the Everglades Foundation was actually founded in 1993. So we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. The Everglades Foundation was founded by two fishing guides, which really stems to what I do at the foundation, which is connecting with different members of the community, such as fishing guides, chambers, businesses, and informing them and educating them on how important Everglades restoration is to them. What was it that caused the Everglades Foundation to be initiated? So there was a massive die-off of seagrass in Florida Bay in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I mentioned earlier, the two fishing guides, one of those being George Barley and then the other being Paul Tudor Jones, they wanted to do something about that. And so they founded the Everglades Foundation, looking at why this is occurring through a science-based lens. And that's really how we are today still, is looking at Everglades restoration and what may be occurring to Florida waters connected to the Everglades and why water quality and quantity are important through that science-based lens. So 30 years later, we're still working on that. We've gained so much momentum and attention, not only on a state level, but also on a national level of how important the Everglades is, not only for environmental habitat, on the ecology of it, but also for the economic side. So seeing that it is such an economic driver when it's connected to tourism and fishing. 
Could you give our listeners sort of an overview of the history of the Everglades? So at roughly 3 million acres now, that really stems from a big push in the early 1900s to basically drain the Everglades. So there was this push to for agriculture and development, and it really ramped up in the 1940s when they passed it legislation to dredge and drain the Everglades. And the Army Corps of Engineers was put in charge of that. And they quickly realized through that, that there was detriment to the Everglades and the water flow. And so we're now reconnecting that system, getting that water moving south again from Lake Okeechobee all the way to Florida Bay. And that's through Everglades National Park as well. So the agency that's working on reconnecting and restoring is actually the Army Corps of Engineers. So they may have been the original ones that did it, but now they're coming back in partnership with the South Florida Water Management District to restore the Everglades. And still, you know, we are within 20 years into legislation that was signed to restore the Everglades starting in 2000. So we're kind of in the final or last decade of restoration so far. And it's, it's very exciting where we're at for the Everglades. So can you tell us now, what are some of the challenges the Everglades is facing now? Yeah, so I would say the two big issues are water quality and quantity. And then additionally, I would add development. So as it relates to water quality and quantity, it's really getting the water right. And that's what a lot of these restoration projects are solving. We have reservoirs that are going to be east, west, south of the lake, and they're going to be able to hold water, clean it, and then send it when it's needed south. And then also additionally, holding water on the east and west coast for when they need it or when it needs to be cleaned. And that's a big deal because getting that water right is going to help keep our soils wet, such as peat soil in the sloughs. It's keeping water levels that don't drastically change in Big Cypress. So these are important projects. And it's a lot of planning and conversations with the communities. And then the second thing I would add is development. We are seeing a huge influx of people coming to Florida. And there's definitely pressures to expand housing and businesses in Florida. We're seeing a lot of that in Miami-Dade and Collier, West Palm Beach to expand these areas. And we need to keep in mind that some of these projects may conflict with Everglades restoration projects. We have 9 million people that rely on the Everglades for their drinking water. And then anytime you visit South Florida and you turn your tap on, that is Everglades water. So without these restoration projects, we would not have the fresh water that keeps Florida moving today. So it sounds like there are many stakeholders involved. You know, you, like you said, you've got the developers pressing in, wanting to develop more land. You've got the sugar conglomerates that want to use agricultural land around Okeechobee for growing their crop. And then you've got people moving down here. I, someone just told me a thousand people a day move down to Florida. Yeah. Um, and they yeah. need water to drink. And then, you know, the other big stakeholder is the wildlife. How is the wildlife doing? Yeah, so the Everglades is, is extremely resilient. We saw success when the alligator was protected. And, you know, we've seen how restoration can benefit wildlife. We saw through the Kissimmee River restoration project north of Lake Okeechobee, basically redoing that river so that it becomes a meandering river and not just straight canal, brought back fish, 
brought back waiting birds. So we're, we're seeing immediate effects when these restoration projects are complete. And so we know that the wildlife is there. We just have to give them the ecosystem and the environment to thrive and come back. And so they are extremely resilient ecosystems. And we just have to provide that fresh water and the habitat for them to continue to thrive. Now, I read Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's wonderful book about the Everglades, and she calls it a river of grass, which you just Mm -hmm. alluded to. Can you tell me that river of grass, the way she described it, the water flows from Lake Okeechobee and slowly and continually flows all the way down to Florida Bay and into the ocean. Is that still occurring? And if so, at what rate and what expanse? Yeah, so the Everglades actually starts south of Orlando at Shingle Creek. So actually right by the airport there in the convention center. And it then meanders through Kissimmee River to Lake Okeechobee. The big disconnect at this point is when we get to Lake Okeechobee and then getting that water through Everglades National Park and to Florida Bay. And so that connecting that by providing the proper storage needed to hold water when we have it is important because right now what we're doing is when the lake gets high we discharge east and west to the St. Lucie and the Caloosahatchee and that is putting tons of fresh water to basically the ocean to tide and so what we need to do is with these restoration projects to have areas to store water so that when the lake gets high we can move it to the storage areas and then release it as needed to the greater Everglades. So the sloughs, the river of grass, and that's imperative to reconnecting the system. The water's getting there, but it's just not getting there in the amount it needs to. And then additionally, at the times it's supposed to. So these water storage areas are imperative to connecting and getting that quantity of water correct. Right. So the water's no longer moving straight south. It's going east and west now when it flushes. It is. Yeah. And I mean, there is definitely movement south, but it's not at the amount and the right time. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what is the state of Lake Okeechobee right now? Is it a clean lake? It definitely has a ton of historic phosphorus in it, and it has its pollution problems of its own. Every summer when it gets hot, we see blue-green algae grow on that lake. And the big problem with that is if we have to do discharges, that means that the blue-green algae that's growing on that lake in the summer then goes to our communities living along the St. Lucie and the Caloosahatchee. And that ends up having impacts to the ecosystems, so the wildlife that live there, the plant life, and then additionally, people can be harmed by blue-green algae. So the lake is at a state right now that we have to definitely keep an eye on and see through restoration, having more water storage, we can definitely keep an eye on those lake levels as it relates to the quality of water in that lake. Could you talk some more about what your organization is doing to help? Yeah, so we have kind of three prongs as a part of the organization. So I mentioned earlier with the founding of the organization is our science. So we have a team of scientists. So we have geohydrologists, ecologists, hydrologists, (laughs) economists. So they all do different work on the Everglades and they study how these restoration projects will benefit Florida and the ecosystems around it. And then we also have our education and literacy program. 
At this point, they've trained 5,000 teachers in the state of Florida, and they have a whole curriculum based on the Everglades and really getting that Everglades education in the schools, teaching people why it's important. And then lastly, our advocacy arm is important because these restoration projects cost a lot of money. So we have to go to the state and federal government and ask for funding that then goes to the Army Corps of Engineers, the South Florida Water Management District. So our advocacy team is busy doing that. Additionally, even on the local levels, we're looking at developments and pushing back against that, just getting the word out. So through that, our organization is busy on all different levels and getting the word out to the communities. That's wonderful. Now, can you tell me from a personal standpoint, what part of the Everglades do you like? (laughs) That's a hard question. I'm a very lucky Floridian. I have my own airboat, so I often get to go out in the central Everglades and the sloughs. But I would have to say one of my favorite parts is definitely Big Cypress. It's so special to be able to kind of walk through this aquatic forest and being in it and you kind of forget that you're in the water because you're just you're hiking through a forest and not being originally from Florida that's such a unique opportunity to experience that and enjoy it really it's a great hike <laughs> so that would probably be my favorite part that's one of the amazing things about the everglades there's so many different ecosystems yeah yeah it's tough to pick one they each have their own special item or place and it's you have to explore them all Right. It's definitely worth taking a trip down here to explore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How can people help the Everglades? Definitely follow us on social media. I'll just highlight really quick. We just completed a uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site partnership with Google. And we have a actually a photographic museum that's online that was done by a high school student. He's very talented. And so just sharing images of the Everglades, showing people how beautiful it is, that really gets the word out there about how special this place is. Because like I said earlier, we do have to ask for federal and state funding. So the more voices that we have across the nation that talk about how important the Everglades is to them, the more that gets up the ranks to those in office, that helps us when we come in and we ask for those dollars to fund restoration projects. So that's how I would advise folks to help out. Just get involved. Follow us on social. Now tell us, how did you end up working for the Everglades Foundation? (laughs) It was actually through just luck. I found they had a job posting for an administrative assistant, and I knew I wanted to work in the environmental field. I formerly worked with uh, sea turtle hatchlings, rescuing them on the beach. And so I was already here in Florida, already involved in the environmental issues here. So the Everglades was kind of that perfect fit for me. And um, it's really grown into something special. And I've been honored to meet the people I have met through this career, and I'm excited to see what else it has to come in the future. Well, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And now to switch gears, I'd like to introduce Cesar Becerra. Cesar is a Florida historian who has explored the Everglades for over 30 years. He works hard to educate the public about the value of the Everglades, both for people and wildlife like the birds. He also had the great experience of reading a book to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, of course, is the author of River of Grass, the iconic book about the Everglades. Caesar, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Oh, it's an honor. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's just wonderful to have you on the show. I'm very excited to talk to you. First of all, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you live and what you do. Well, I'm from Miami, born and raised, and I've been enthralled with South Florida history for many, many moons. And one of my niches is the Everglades, and very nice of them. But Miami Herald, 1997, during the 50th anniversary of Everglades National Park, called me an Everglades evangelist because I love sharing stories about the Everglades. But I'm a historian and I'm a writer. I've written five books on the different aspects of Miami, South Florida, and one of them is on the logging history of the Everglades. So throughout time, I've met some incredible people, and one of those persons was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. I actually got to meet her at two times in my life. One was more profound than the other one. But anyway, yeah, I'm a big champion of the Everglades, her work, and, and others, a lot of unsung heroes. And I first met her during her 101st birthday, where I just simply went to the library where she was talking and signing books. And I stood next to her and, and my 10-year-old sister was there and we got a photograph. So I got to stand next to the matriarch of the Florida Everglades, arguably. And then a couple of years later, I was asked by Theo to come over to the house her house, Marjorie's house, and read to her, which is just like, excuse me, what? You want me to read to her? So I get to her house, which is this beautiful, small, little kind of English cottage looking with reeds in the roof and just, you know, just very quaint. I was ushered through the house. I got to her room, which is kind of an imposing, scary moment because there she was on this kind of high bed covered in like white sheets and what have you. And she was kind of, you know, her head poking out top and it was this book and I was ushered in and they, I was introduced to her, but she didn't really move because, you know, she couldn't hear very well. And I was told to, you know, go ahead and there's the bookmark to where the, the last person reading left off. And, and I started to read and I don't remember what it was, but let's say it was, let's say the first sentence was, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, as soon as I get into the word night, I get a tap on my shoulder and it's Theo saying, um, Caesar, you're going to have to be a little louder than that. So start over. So I interject a little deeper. I said, it was this dark and stormy. And this time on the word stormy, not even night, a little tap on the shoulder. Yeah, uh, Caesar, you, you don't really get it. She really can't hear. You're going to have <laughs> to really project your voice. And Catherine, for the next 20 minutes, I had the most uncomfortable job in all my life. I was practically yelling into the ear <laughs> of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who was craning her neck on every word, but it felt like I was harming her. I mean, it was very uncomfortable for me. But yeah, I got to read to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. <laughs> that is wonderful. Now, did she talk to you about the Everglades at all between readings? No, at that point of her life, she I think was 104. Right. And it was just more of a one-way thing. And, but it was an honor, though, to be in her home with her. Um, basically left alone that whole 20 minutes. You know, Theo went off to do something else in the kitchen or what have you. So it was just a, a highlight of my life to just personally get to be in a moment. So I, I wouldn't call, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends or anything like that. But I'm a friend of her work and the bigger journey that is the Everglades. It sounds like a wonderful once-in-a-lifetime moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. I got a couple more impacts later that I'll share with you about Marjorie. 
But yeah, we can go on. Yeah. Now, she wrote her book, River of Grass, in her 70s, correct? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was more of her late 50s or okay, 51 or 52, because she joins the ranks of many people. I don't know if you've seen a, an adage out there that says, look at all these people that have done things past 50. But I don't, I don't think she was 70. I, there's a couple of photographs of her signing her Everglades River of Grass. She was definitely not 70. She may have been 70 when she was tapped to become an activist. Because remember, when she wrote the book, and the book, by the way, has its own glorious story. Harvey Allen of the publishing house that was putting out a series called Rivers of America approached her to do a book on the Miami River. And she kind of quipped back, well, that would be a short book. Miami River's about an inch long and it would be over before it began. That's a paraphrase. But basically, she was uh, concerned that it's a dinky little river compared to the Mississippi. But she had a hunch and her hunch was to ask around. And she asked some of the most noted biologists and water experts. And there weren't a lot of them. She asked around, she asked, could the Everglades be considered a river? Because it, it kind of does flow from one point. It's an odd river. It's not one you can kind of like look at and say, here's the right bank, here's the left bank. And lo and behold, they all say, yeah, yeah, I guess you could consider it that way. And, and it had already been considered. I mean, the term Pahe Oke means grassy waters. And in a way, it's her added inflection that to call and simplify the whole thing to be the river of grass. So Everglades, the river of grass, that in a way is in a sense is like a one page book on a title page. Basically, it kind of already conjures up this, okay, there's grass, there's immensity and, and there's movement and it's a river. So it's almost like a definition rather than a title. Right. So now she was working as a reporter for the Miami Herald when she started looking into the Everglades and its importance. Yes, but on the tail end of her kind of reporting days, her early reporting days in the Herald. So when she came to Miami to be with her father after a divorce that she had gone through and father hired her as a cub reporter. Now, a cub reporter would basically be covering just about anything you can throw at the reporter. But slowly and quickly, her niche was to cover some social scenes and some, you know, whereabouts, who's who. But also she had a lot of interest and she would write every now and then a different article about different topics. But eventually she actually grew out of that and really liked working for magazines and periodicals where she would have a lot more free time because, you know, working for a newspaper is like, go, 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 deadline, deadline, deadline. Whereas you work on spec for a magazine, you know, you, you get something approved, then you'll have like a month or two to urge yourself into that writing that piece. But obviously being in South Florida immediately, when she first came down here, she writes the first day, literally off the train, writes about the light. She just was so intrigued by what different intensity the sunlight was down here. And I think she fell in love very quickly. But as far as the Everglades is concerned, she certainly had friends that loved the Everglades. She was certainly exposed to the Everglades. But one thing you have to know about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, she never really got into them. I mean, she got into them and occasionally she would be on a canoe or, but she never really, you know, a lot of the time she liked to see him off of a boardwalk. She wasn't as intense a jumper into the muck and all that good stuff, but she had a lot of respect. She certainly studied them very intently. 
by carefully interviewing a lot of people and looking at a lot of data. Now, it seems like before she wrote her book, River of Grass, the vast majority of Americans basically thought of the Everglades as a worthless swamp. But she was able to help people see that it's a rare and vital wilderness. Yes, and I'm glad you pointed that out. As early as the 1850s, the state of Florida becomes a state in 1845, but in the 1850s, there's a document that's actually sent through Congress. This is a congressional report about the Everglades and about the the whole issue of, you know, now it's a state, what do we do with it from this point on? It's a territory since 1821, but one of the stark things in this congressional, only a one-page report says that the area known as the Everglades being inundated with water are valueless to the United States of America. And so they should be subdivided, carved out, and now I'm paraphrasing, and drained, basically. In other words, the only good Everglades is if we can take all this water out of it. So we had to go through a long arc of change. And, and Marjorie was part of that change. Remember when the River of Grass was published, luckily in a stroke of some genius, I don't think it was recorded in this way, but it opened during the same year the Everglades National Park opened. And I think both the park and the book helped themselves to kind of sell themselves because the Everglades as a national park was a serious gamble and a very hard sell not only to Congress, but private interest, state interest, because it didn't look like anything. In fact, when Harry Truman shows up in 1947 to open the park, he says, here there are none of the things we are used to seeing in our national parks. He goes on eloquently to say that instead there are vast and lonely distances, intricate and monotonous waterways, and then there are other things. And you have to understand that the national park, the Everglades, was singular in that it was the first time that we saved and protected something for biological reasons strictly. Other parks had like a big thing, you know, El Capitan or a, a massive geyser or big waterfall, something that, you know, you couldn't mistake for anything else. But the Everglades were far more subtle. It's actually almost a miracle. And actually it was credited to another gentleman who Marjorie worked very hard in correcting, Ernest Coe, who she later in life, she said, listen, without Ernest Coe, there would be no... Everglades National Park and probably no Everglades. But her book coming out at the same time, that was a very important moment because we had this new national park that didn't look like anything, but then we had this book that helped us understand it. Now, I understand it in the Everglades, millions of birds were being, of course, we're being the Bird Hugger podcast. I have to say this. Millions Absolutely. of birds were being killed for their feathers for ladies' hats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Turn of the century, it was horrible. At one point in time, around 1900, 1901, 1902, an ounce of bird feathers was worth more than an ounce of gold. That's a true statement. Now, in 1904, something dramatic did happen to start to change the tide. Even though there were voices to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be killing these birds, etc. There was a moment that shocked the nation, and that was the killing, the murder of Guy Bradley, who was the first Audubon warden shot on location. Actually, he was hired by not the Audubon Society, but helped along with the society and the Florida State Fund. There was different funds that, that hired him. But when he got shot protecting birds, people couldn't, it kind of blew their minds because today we have an unteen amount of organizations that go out there to defend all sorts of animals. But back in 1900, turn of the century, you didn't have that many. And certainly even the Audubon wasn't known for that. 
But this was a seminal change. And when that happened, people started to take another look at this debate on whether, you know, it's the price of putting these feathers on hats worth somebody losing their life. Plus, there was the issues that what? What do you mean somebody lost their life defending birds? So that started to change. Now, there were two laws that helped it out. One was a Florida law that said, look, it is illegal to shoot these birds. But honestly, because of the price that they commanded, it really didn't do that much of a stopgap. But there was another a law in, in New York, I believe, in, in the millinery trade that said, all right, now it is illegal to sell these feathers. And then they, they really started to change. So it took a long time to curve this. But yes, bird life. Oh, and I have something great, Catherine, to tell you. A very simple way to really equate Everglades and bird life and just to get it down. And I'm normally not a numbers guy, but a birder told me this and I was like, wow, now I get it. So again, with a big grain of salt, 13 to 15,000 species back then that was associated to be known on, on the planet of birds. And a thousand of those 13 to 15,000 were in North America. Well, guess what? In Florida, there were 500 of the 1,000 represented in the state of Florida. But here's the kicker. In Florida, Dade County represented 450 species of the 500 in Florida. Wow. So you have this incredible, really question mark answered in one number. Of course, they came down to shoot birds here. This was the place to go. Mm. Uh, they were all down here and they could yeah, have their pick a filling of you know, everything from flamingos to roseate spoonbills to great white herons and egrets. You had the whole gamut. And other ones, you know. So, yeah, 450 just down. Now, that's easy to kind of later explain. Well, Florida's like a big diving board. And the last place that they kind of fuel up before they go south is the diving board, the edge of the diving board. And then when the first place when they fly up across the Caribbean from South America, et cetera, they're pooped and they're ready to rest is the edge of the diving board. So South Florida was it for birders, for birders that were here to, Later on, we say bag the birds in a different way. And still to this day, people come from miles and countries around the world. I've been to Corpus Swamp Sanctuary, and you can just hear the different languages on the boardwalk. In one day, they could probably see, even if they get only five or six species, sometimes they'll travel to another country to see one species to put on their list. So yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Florida's pretty remarkable. It's a birder's paradise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me, I understand that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas played a role in the founding of the Everglades National Park? Was it just the writing of the book or did she do some other work? That's a good question. Not only did she write the book, but she was part of what was called originally the Tropic Everglades National Park Association. And actually, originally, they were going to call it the Tropic Everglades National Park. And the reason for that, even though they dropped it later, was that this was, you know, again, the tropics, the biology was so different. There's more plant and animal life in this one park. And if you throw in all the national parks in America, combine them, start listing the critters, it doesn't come close. And that's understandable. You're peeking out into the tropics, you're getting to a whole different biology. But she was part of a group that was very fastidious to get the word out, not only to private landholders, but state and to Congress and to the Department of Interior. And there were two, well, actually three big moments. One was a blimp trip that actually Marjorie was on. And her role was pretty interesting. You would think, okay, she's with these congressmen and and senators and what have they're showing them. Well, the whole time she's on the blimp, she's assisting Ernest Coe, 
the chairman of the park association, he was throwing up and she was holding the bag, basically, throughout the whole trip. Uh, there was another flight that went over and then a famous boat trip that they took throughout Florida Bay and the 10,000 Islands. So there was ways that they had to bring, and they creatively showed the Everglades to these kind of the, head, the big top brass in Washington that would come down. So she was part of that group, yes. She just sounds like a very strong lady. Mm-hmm. She minced no words. Later in life, when she became an activist, there were moments, and some of these can be found on the internet and some of them at archives where Marjorie would come to the podium or somebody was about to introduce Marjorie. And they would start with this kind of flowery thing. And of course, she looks like a grandma. And, and after a flowery thing, and you can imagine, you know, getting to the microphone, she's probably going to say, well, thank you very much. No, she would go straight into, all right, let's get down to it. And she would just abruptly get to the issue, to the problem, <laughs> and throw the niceties away. So she was not about being coddled or she understood that these politicians were also using her popularity. And it was a, a moment where there was a bill that was to be signed as the Marjorie Stoneman Dunn. And she said, take my name off that bill. I think that was with Lawton Childs. She did not want to be used. So she's very, very interesting. Ironically, after her death, there was a wilderness named after her. Deep in the middle of the Everglades, there's a section called the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness. Now, to become a wilderness section means that the park cannot allow anything of a noisemaker in the middle of the park. So it's kind of a, a rare treat to be named, you know, a section named after you as a wilderness. But I don't know if she would, she would really be for that, actually. Um, <laughs> she's an interesting gal. Yeah. Now, in the time remaining, tell us about your book on the Everglades. Well, I've written a lot more articles on the Everglades than a book, but I have written about the loggers of the Everglades, particularly about the Cypress loggers of the Everglades. And the book I wrote about the birth of Miami, a separate book on called Orange Blossom 2.0, also gets into what was out there in terms of the Seminoles and the early pioneers. And one of the things you have to know is that today when you get to Miami, you fly in, you have to get in a car and go about 20, 30 miles before you get to the edge to go visit the Everglades. But back in the old days, the Everglades were right up against the ocean, basically. I mean, when you stood, you got off the boat or anything like that, you stood on dry land, you were in the glades. You know, you didn't have to go very far. There was a historic moment if you came to visit Henry Flagler's Royal Palm Hotel back in 1897 and on. Uh, you'd get on a small boat up Miami River. You'd take it about a length of a football field. And then you'd walk up a platform to look at the Everglades. You didn't have to go 30 miles like you do today. So, you know, we have carved away the original Everglades. We've built our homes on the Everglades. We kind of do have our hands a little dirty. Anybody, you know, really, for years we have been building on the Everglades. We have been changing and altering the water supply just on the sheer numbers. You know, you have 14.5 million people from Miami to West Palm Beach. Those people have to drink water. They're going to divert water from the Everglades, even if you don't divert it physically from left to right, you know, just by lowering the water table, you're affecting the Everglades. So we're all in it. And we have to really understand that wasting water and not paying attention to the politics and not supporting, you know, a program to help it or try to help it out 
sometimes even the experts disagree, but we're part of it. We're on it. We need to make sure we can save the rest. I'd like to thank Cesar Becerra for joining us today and to all of you for joining us in our discussion about the Florida Everglades. Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.